that if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, Acts chapter 17 and verses number 22 and 23. The Bible says, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I pass by and behold your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. The city of Athens was uh, filled with idolatry, so much so that they had an idol to every God imaginable. And in case they missed one, they put up another idol and on the inscription it read to the unknown God and Paul didn't miss a chance. He said, well, this, this is the one we're going to use to represent Jesus. And he preached Jesus to them. And uh, Paul, in Acts 17, is going to make his way to three different locations. He's going to present the same truth, and he's going to get three different responses uh, from a popular, uh, three different popular responses. So we're going to look at those responses tonight. I believe that those three same responses are the same ones we're met with. There could be others, but those three are the main ones we're met with as we go about giving the gospel, inviting people to church, sharing the good news with others, and uh, we'll see the struggle that Paul had with that tonight. Uh, The title of the sermon this evening is this, Helping Those with Misplaced Faith. Helping Those with Misplaced Faith. I've I've had people tell me, I don't have any faith, I don't trust anyone, and the fact is that's not true. They may not trust anyone, but they trust themselves. They trust themselves. Everybody trusts someone. Everybody trusts something. Um, How many of you uh, rode in a car to get to church tonight? Raise your hand if you rode in a car to get to church tonight. Some of you may have walked, okay, because you don't trust other drivers. But you know what? When you get in the car and you're driving on the road, you're trusting people you've never met, you don't know. Uh, You go down the road and there's that double yellow line and you have a car coming at you. What's preventing them from coming over and hitting you head on? Well, you're trusting that they won't. You're trusting a complete stranger. So everyone has natural faith, but uh, we'll talk tonight about faith and believing and uh, those that have faith, but it's misplaced, it's not in Christ. Let's pray tonight. Lord, help us as we uh, go verse by verse through Acts 17 to understand it. Lord, help us to take the truths out of this chapter, and Lord, be made better by it. Lord, uh, all of us have folks in our life that we care about uh, that need the gospel, that need to be saved. And so may this give us a better insight on what we need to accomplish to help bring them to that point of decision. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, have you found that some people are just difficult to witness to? I can remember as a little boy, uh, 13, 14 years old, I was attending a camp, the same camp I took Matthew to in May, and uh, my grandmother was alive at the time and lived just down the road from where we were, about an hour and a half away. So she drove up to pick me and my dad up and take us out to eat, and spend some time with my uncles, and I was going to get to be alone in the car with my grandmother. And I had been learning all week how to lead someone to Christ. And so my springboard into witnessing to her was going to be, can I take a few minutes and show you what I've been learning at camp this week? And I'm thinking to myself, how can she tell me no? I mean, I'm her grandchild, right? This, this is going to be easy, and she'll, be, uh, she'll have to tolerate this car ride I'm going to get her, give her the gospel, so she picked me up, I got in the car, and I tried that line, and her response was, if it has to do with heaven and hell, I don't want to hear anything about it. Okay, I guess we're not talking about that then. Um, and so some people are just difficult to witness to, right? They'll talk to you about anything under the sun. I have a neighbor named Matt, and uh, when I want to talk to Matt about bees, he's, got, he's a beekeeper, he has chickens, he's got, he does all that kind of stuff. I want to talk to him about nature, I want to talk to him about politics, I want to talk to him about you know, fixing the house or whatever. Boy, he will talk, your, you can't get away from the guy. I learned about a year and a half ago how to get away from Matt. All I have to do is bring up God and the Bible and Jesus and he leaves me alone. He all of a sudden is too busy to chat. Some people are difficult to witness to. Some folks tell me that they have faith. Uh, I contend that everyone has faith. But faith in what? Faith in what? Others tell me that their faith is weak. And that they don't know how to believe in Jesus or a God who they cannot see. Right? Uh, what state is it? Is the show me state? Is that I always get it mixed up? Missouri. I think one time I said it was Kansas, and people said, no, it's not Kansas. I think it's Kansas City is in Missouri, not, anyway. Uh, Missouri is the show-me state, right? Is there a Kansas City, Kansas? 
there is a Kansas City, Kansas, and it, I'm getting way off track here. Amen. Um, but uh, the show me state. Some people are the show me state, right? I, I can't see God with my eyes. They're like Thomas. Uh, I can't touch him with my hands. Then I won't believe. Well, uh, they say they don't have any faith. Uh, but uh, the truth is, uh, I think that's a false statement. They say, well, I, I'm weak in faith. I can't believe in a God I cannot see. Everyone has faith. Uh, if not in anything else, they have faith in themselves. They trust their senses above all. They trust, they trust what they can see, taste, uh, hear. How many of you have ever seen one of these videos on uh, social media or YouTube uh, that are optical illusion videos? You think you're seeing one thing. And then come to, your eyes are fooling you. You're not seeing that at all. If you, your eyes can be deceived that easily, boy, why do we trust our senses uh, when our senses can get it all wrong? How many of you are like me at some point in your life? You were emphatic. You were 100% certain that you were right on a big topic in your life. And then you had that moment where you realized, I could not be further from the truth. How many of you have had a moment like that in your life where you are sure the rest of you are just always right all the time? Amen. Uh, but uh, so you're sure that you got it down. You're sure that you're right. Why? Because we just really can't trust our senses. People that say they have no faith, oftentimes they have a great deal of faith in their own senses. In Acts 17, we find the Apostle Paul back in the region of Macedonia, where we left him last week when we finished 16. He's just left the Roman colonial city of Philippi, where many of the Greeks had been saved. You remember Lydia and uh, the, the captive slave that was demonically possessed, the Philippian jailer, others no doubt got saved, and uh, he was uh, thrown out of Philippi. So in this chapter, he travels to three different cities where he will encounter three different responses to the gospel. In each city, uh, the people are trusting in something different. They're trusting in something different. I'm talking about the populace of the city, trusting in something different. Uh, I believe that Paul's experience in Acts 17 covers the majority of cases of people that you will meet as you try and spread the gospel with those around you. So let's jump in to the beginning of chapter 17, uh, verse number 1, as we accompany Paul and his team as they enter the city of Thessalonica. And we'll see three different concepts where people place their trust as we consider their, this title, Helping Those with Misplaced Faith. Okay, number one this evening. Number one, some trust in tradition. Some trust in tradition. Look at verse number one with me. The Bible says, Now when they had passed through, uh, and, 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 and let's see, I read this fine in my office. And Help me out here. Amphipolis, there it is. And Apollina, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. So um, Amphipolis and Apollina were overnight stays. They were small cities uh, where they were passing through to get to the major hub city of that region of Thessalonica. Uh, Paul departed Philippi. He passed through these smaller towns on to the big town in Macedonia. You say, well, why didn't Paul stop and uh, care about these smaller areas? Why did he stop and establish churches there. We have to understand Paul's missionary philosophy again. It was get to the big city and reach the big city and then let the big city, uh, the churches established in the big city after he leaves, reach out into the rural area where they'll have the resources. And sure enough, if you follow Paul's journey, when he comes back to visit churches, as Thessalonica would do, they would go out into the smaller communities like an Amphipolis and an Apollina, and they would take the gospel to those places. So Paul goes to uh, Thessalonica, a large city, and he begins his mission work there. Letter A, notice Paul's doctrine. Paul's doctrine. Look at verse number two. The Bible says, and Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, uh, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must uh, needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is the Messiah, is the Christ. So uh, Paul uh, and Silas would have walked into Thessalonica. They would have walked in the synagogue and shown off their credentials. What credentials did Paul and Silas have? Well, Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a Roman. 
and walking in and showing that to the synagogue would have gotten immediately given him a speaking opportunity. Silas was from Jerusalem and um, had no doubt at one point been part of uh, the Judaism sect in Jerusalem. And so these two men come walking in. Boy, they are a big deal coming all the way to the Greek region of Macedonia and finding their way to the synagogue of uh, uh, the synagogue of the Jews there in Thessalonica. And you may say, well, didn't word get around that Paul was a converted Christian? They didn't have Facebook back then. They didn't have text messaging back then. They didn't have phones back then. So word did not spread to this region. They did not know who Paul was. He was to them a complete stranger. But when Paul walked in and showed off his credentials, they said, well, please, then speak. And they gave him the floor to speak to the Jews and those that assembled in the synagogue for three weeks, three Sabbath days. He got up and he opened up the Old Testament scrolls And he explained to them that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, was indeed the Christ. And he laid that out for them. He took three weeks to make a convincing case. Now, um, the the people's expectation for the Messiah was not that Jesus would come and suffer. Again, look back at verse number 3. Verse number 3 says, uh, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. This was a total 180 from their expectation of who they thought Jesus was and who he'd be. They were looking for a conquering king, not a suffering servant. They were looking for the Messiah to come in on a, a, a horse and deliver them from the Roman Empire, and reestablish the rule in Jerusalem, worldwide rule in Jerusalem, like they had under King David and Solomon. They weren't looking for a suffering servant to ride in on, on a mule and be nailed to a cross. And so Paul had to take three weeks and lay a case out from the Old Testament as to why Jesus would have died on the cross. No doubt he took them to places like Isaiah 53, Genesis 22, Leviticus 22, Psalm 22. He would have taken them to chapters such as these and shown the typology of Jesus out of Joseph and uh, the various uh, uh, places, Isaac going up the mountain. And uh, listen, he laid out a strong case for Christ, and what was the result? Letter B, notice the people's division. The people's division. Look down at verses 4 and 5 of Acts chapter 17. The Bible says, And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, meaning the Gentiles, who got in on this and heard of it, a great multitude, and of the chief women, or uh, the the women of the Greek world that uh, held held positions of authority, uh, positions of clout, not a few. Many Greek women of great authority, of great leadership in the city got saved. Uh, the Greek multitudes got saved, and some Jews got saved. Some Jews got saved. Uh, and then look at verse 5. But the Jews which believed not, the Jews meaning the religious sect of the synagogue, the Jews which believed not, moved with envy. We'll look at the rest of that verse in just a moment. Some of the Jews believed, and many, if not most, of the Greek Gentiles believed, including women of great wealth. The Jews represented the leaders of the church. They rejected Paul's message. They were more in love with their religion, Judaism, than they were with the truth about Jesus Christ. Um. Today, the gospel is still causing division with people who come from religious backgrounds. Turn over to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Hold your place there in Acts 17. Matthew chapter 10, turn over to verse number 34. When we think of Jesus, we think of a meek and mild man, and I believe that does define him. He was uh, even-tempered. He was uh, a, a, a man who was perfectly in control of his emotions, Uh, We think of a man who came to bring peace. But Jesus said, at least in this instance, in this scenario, when we're talking about people with religious homes, that he did not necessarily come to bring peace. Look at verse 34 of Matthew 10. Uh, Think not, Jesus said, that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, And the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Not much help was needed with that one. Amen. Verse 36. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Well, why? Because somebody like a Paul was going to stroll into town and preach the gospel. And the daughter-in-law was going to believe. But the mother-in-law was going to hold to her religion. 
And that was going to create a division. A sword would separate the two of them. Uh, a son was going to believe, or a father was going to believe, and the counterpart was not going to believe. They were going to hold to that tradition, and they were not going to let go. Why does the gospel divide? Because some people do not want to trust Christ. They are too busy trusting in the traditions of a false religion. And listen, I am preaching in a city that by the senses is 93% Catholic. Many of you in here have family or friends or colleagues or, or neighbors that are Catholic. You go to them and you give them the gospel and they say to you, well, well, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. But like we talked about today, they have a head knowledge. They've not tasted the honey. They don't have a heart knowledge. And uh, but really what they're believing in is the fact that they were baptized as a baby and that they're doing their best to be a good person. All of that's mixed in with believing in Jesus. And you tell them it's not about being Catholic. It's about being forgiven and they get highly offended. How many of you know what I'm talking about tonight? They get highly offended. Some of you in here may have been that Catholic that was highly offended at one point. Why? Because they are in love with the traditions of a religion that's dead. And such was the case with the Jews. Paul came in and he said, Judaism is a relic of the past. Jesus has come and fulfilled the shadows of the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of the sacrifices in the temple. He is the fulfillment of the priesthood. He is the fulfillment of all typology of Judaism. The tabernacle in the temple. We don't need to do those things anymore. Jesus has come to fulfill the law. He is the Christ. He died for your sins. Believe in Him. Him, and many did, but most did not. And he, Paul was rejected. Paul was rejected. Letter C, notice the church's danger. It wasn't just enough for them to reject Paul's message. It wasn't just enough to accept that some people saw it differently than they did. No, they viewed Paul now as an enemy and someone who needed to be disposed of. His followers needed to be punished. And this needed to be squelched. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 of Acts 17. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set this all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that had turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the degree of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city. This would have been the Roman rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the others, they let them go. So what, what's, there's a lot to unpack here. What happened? The Jews could not go blow for blow with Paul's knowledge. There wasn't going to be a sit down where Paul sat across the table from the, the Jewish leaders in the synagogue there in Thessalonica, and they had a, an intellectual uh, debate. There was no debate to be had. Paul was mopping up the floor with them because he knew the Old Testament law, and he had, had uh, the gospel revealed to him by Jesus Christ himself. They were not going to stand a chance against Paul. And so, you know, uh, the, the idea there is if you can't beat them, join them, right? That's the old phrase. But their attitude became if you can't beat them, jail them. Jail them. And so what did they do? Well, they went down to the marketplace and they found men, the Bible says, were base men. Uh, and uh, these were men who were just wandering around with nothing to do. Uh, men who were probably homeless and uh, men that did not need much help getting stirred up. That's a fine crowd for uh, the religious snobs of the synagogue to be hanging out with, right? And they, they basically did what I'll call rent a mob. Rent a mob. They got these uh, base men all worked up, and they started a riot in the city. Well, why was that a problem? That was a problem because Romans did not like large gatherings and big problems. This was something they would put down quickly. What were the Jews doing? They were causing a stir in town in order to uh, bring attention to the Roman government in order to get the Roman government to do their dirty work. So, lo and behold... They go over to Paul's house. 
or rather they go over to Jason's house. Jason was one of the men who got saved and uh, part of this early church at Thessalonica. They go to Jason's house. You say, well, why did they go to Jason's house? Because Paul was staying there. This was Paul's headquarters. Uh, Jason was putting him up. But word got to them that the, the uh, Renamob was coming that way and that the, the uh, Romans were coming that way. So Paul and Silas were escorted out the back door and hid, put in secrecy and hid. And when they broke down the door looking for Paul and Silas and couldn't find them, they arrested Jason instead. Jason was taken into custody and Jason was brought before the Roman government. And what was the accusation before the Roman government? The accusation was that Paul and his followers were guilty of an insurrection. They were guilty of treason. They were trying to crown someone else king. Instead of uh, the Roman king, they were going to make Jesus Christ the king. And uh, that case was laid out and the Romans are trying to objectively listen and listen to the case being made and listen to the argument against it. And, and, you know, things just really aren't stacking up, but they feel like they're in a sticky spot. The Jews had connections in high places and they needed to appease them, but yet they needed to get the mob to go away. And if they just let Jason go, well, now this mob could be stirred back up. And so they held Jason in custody and a deal was made with Jason and the government. Jason said, okay, if you let me go, I'll get Paul and Silas to leave town and never come back. You say, well, how do you know that that deal was struck? Because Paul and Silas never went back to Thessalonica. According to the rest of the book of Acts and their travels, Paul and Silas never went back to Thessalonica. But you know what? And all of that, Paul and Jason's release, and Paul and Silas are sent out of town, out of Thessalonica. So how do you know that? Well, uh, by the way, one good thing that came uh, from uh, them being banned from Thessalonica is that a new uh, way to evangelize evolved, and that was through letter. Uh, some believe that First and Th- Second Thessalonians were the first epistles divine epistles that Paul wrote. Now, Galatians is most likely the first, but 1st and 2nd Thessalonians would have been right up there toward the top. And what do we find in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians? We find Paul praising the church of Thessalonica because they were busy, they were busy taking the gospel to the regions beyond their hometown. They were spreading the gospel all over the place. And then we find the hostile environment that they were left behind in. Because in both 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, Paul has to comfort the church because they've had brethren that have died, most likely have been killed for their stand for what was right in that town. Listen, I just, I, I, I just want to say this here. Some of the most hostile people to witness to are people that are in love with tradition. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I don't believe in uh, certain characters that are promoted around holidays. Is that generic enough, parents? All right. There are certain characters I don't believe in around holidays. But I don't run around, you know, uh, throwing people in jail and persecuting people who do believe in them. You know? To me, if, if you want to believe in those things, go right ahead. Uh, you know, I, whatever. Why is it that people in one sentence say, I don't believe in God the way you do, but because you believe in God the way you do, I'm going to persecute you for it. Because they're living in rebellion against God. And listen, some people who cling to tradition, boy, you bring up the gospel and they get hot under the collar quickly. How many of you here, and don't, you don't have to raise your hand, but I wonder how many of you here uh, have a family member or someone you love dearly and you want to witness to them, but they are so religious, they get angry when you bring up the gospel. They get angry when you talk to them about it. Some people, their trust is not in Jesus. Oh, it might be in some form of Jesus, but their trust really is in religious tradition. How do you help people that are of that sort? Well, let me just tell you quickly, you spend a lot of time on your knees praying for them. You ask God to soften their heart. I appreciate Miss Corrine Wolf who got, uh, got saved some time back, and she was a devout Catholic and had a daughter who got saved and prayed for her. And uh, lots of prayers went up on Corrine's behalf. And one day she was handed some literature, and God used that literature to show her her need of salvation. And this woman, who was a devout Catholic, came to a point where she realized, I'm clinging to tradition. I'm not clinging to the cross. 
I need to be saved. I think of my mother-in-law who died in the wool Catholic and uh, Angela would try to witness to her and uh, didn't want to hear it, didn't want to have anything to do with it. Well, at the passing of uh, Angela's great-grandmother, my mother-in-law's mom, her heart was tender to the gospel and she listened and at that moment got saved. God will move in the heart of people who cling to tradition in times of crisis in order for them to be saved. You must know how to have the discernment and be bold and be ready to stand up and witness when the time is right and the Spirit moves. Number one, some trust in tradition. Number two, some trust in truth. Some trust in truth. Now, Paul leaves Thessalonica. He takes a 60-mile trip down to the city of Berea. And in Berea, he goes about this the same way with different results. Letter A, notice Paul's sermon. Paul's sermon. Look at Acts 17 and look at verse number 10. The Bible says, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, let me just say this before we move on. He's going to go in the synagogue, and he's going to get back up with his credentials, and he's going to preach here as well. Um, every time that Paul has gone into a synagogue to preach, it has not gone well. From the first missionary journey to here, every time it has caused him to get stoned or to get thrown in jail uh, or to get hurt in some way or to get run out of town, right? Um, uh, he has faced major persecution for this tactic of going into the synagogue. Can you maybe see that Paul could have thought, this isn't working real well, you know? Maybe we won't go to the synagogue. Hey, you know what? The Gentiles in town always want to listen to us. Maybe we'll pass flyers around town, and we'll just start with the Gentiles, and we'll ignore the Jews. And Paul very easily could have done that, but that Paul was a man of character, and he was a man of principle. And you know what he said? He said the Jew first, and also the Greek. Why? Why did he say that? Because Jesus was a Jew, and Jesus came first to minister to the Jews. And so uh, Paul was going to go in the synagogue and he was going to give God's chosen people a chance to be saved. And then he knew that would bleed over to the Gentiles. Furthermore, every time Paul went into a synagogue up to this point, again, up to this point, every time he'd gone into a synagogue, there had always been some Jews that had gotten saved. And many of those Jews became the back, backbone of the churches that were started when he left. And so while he may have stirred up a hornet's nest, all the same, there were still people who were getting saved who were making up the backbone of that church. And so Paul knew it was an important endeavor even though he was going to face persecution. I can see that Paul went into the synagogue in Berea assuming, based on past experiences, that trouble was coming his way, but to his surprise, he found quite the opposite. And so uh, we find here some people trust in tradition, some trust in truth. Letter B, notice the people's standard. The people's standard. Look at verse number 11 here. So Paul goes in the synagogue. He opens up the scrolls, the Old Testament, and he preaches to them Christ and his, the need of him to suffer, just like he did in Thessalonica. And what was the result? Look at verse 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whither those things were so. Therefore many of them believed, also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men not a few. Now, uh, growing up, I've heard this verse out of context. I've heard this verse and thought, well, yeah, you had this little church in Thessalonica, and you had this little church in Berea, and the people in Berea, the church of Berea, they searched the Scriptures daily, but the people in the church in Thessalonica, they were just kind of taking it, oh, okay, whatever you say, Paul. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about when Paul went into the synagogue in Thessalonica, they, their standard was not truth. Their standard was tradition. But when Paul walked into the synagogue in Berea, they weren't looking to worship tradition. Their standard was, we want to know what is right. Hey, Paul, you're going to share with us that you think that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, we're going to search the Scriptures daily and prove whether or not those things are so. I'm thankful that on a Saturday, any given Saturday or day of the week, I go and knock on doors here in this community. I meet a lot of people who are trusting in tradition. 
In fact, most of the people that I meet are trusting in tradition in this area. Uh, You say, well, how do you know you're going to heaven someday? And their answer is because I'm Catholic. That's the answer. That's the answer commonly. But I'm thankful that I meet some people that when I take them to truth, they want to see what the Word of God says. They don't care what the Catholic dogma is or the Methodist dogma is or the Baptist dogma is, doctrine. They want to know what the Bible says. And here Paul opens up the Scriptures and many, many of the Jews are not looking to follow Jewish tradition. They are hungry for truth. Hungry for truth. These are the people who are open and ready to be saved. Now let me just speak to the church here for a moment. Many of you, if not all of you in here, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you. And I hope that God has put a burning desire in your heart to share that truth with anyone and everyone that will listen. Can I just say this to you? Don't waste your time ramrodding the truth down someone's throat who's trusting in tradition. Should you witness to them? Yes, you should when the opportunities present themselves. But listen, I think what a lot of Christians do is they take their Bible and they beat someone over the head that does not want to hear the gospel. There are millions and millions and millions of people, billions of people walking this planet like Christian. Christian is the man that John Ordonia has led to the Lord yesterday. Christian became a Christian yesterday. Amen? Christian came to church today and he sat in my life group and uh, my life group was so welcoming to him and Christian felt so loved. It was just written all over his face how loved he felt here at our church today. And um, Christian yesterday was ready to receive. You know what he had done? He had said to the Lord this week, he had said, I want to know the truth. If I could reinterpret his prayer, I want to know the truth. Can you show me the truth? Lo and behold, Brother John, being obedient to the Lord, showed up on a Saturday when he had other things to do. He's in his place where he's supposed to be. He's finishing up and ready to go back to the church and get his son and go home. And lo and behold, God puts Christian in his path. And Christian's walked down the gospel. And Christian is ready to receive the truth. Here's what I want to tell you, church. When God puts people like Christian in your path, are you blind to it or do you see it? Are you ready? Or are you so preoccupied with yourself and your schedule and your time and your energy that you completely miss those opportunities to share the truth with those that God puts in front of you? There's plenty of people in this world, their standard in life of trust is what is true. They believe in absolute truth and they're looking for someone to shine the light in their heart so they can find the way. They can go from being blind to seeing Christians, we need to be busy helping people who are looking for truth find the truth in Jesus Christ. Letter A, we see Paul's sermon. Letter B, we see the people's standard, that standard being truth. Letter C, we see the revival stopped. The revival stopped. At least Paul's involvement in the revival stopped. Look at verse number 13. The Bible says, And when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go, as it were, unto the sea. But Silas and Timotheus abode there still. These knuckle-headed Thessalonican Jews. It wasn't enough that Paul left their town. They got word that Paul was preaching the same message in the synagogue in Berea that he had been preaching in their Thessalonica. And they said, oh no, he doesn't. So they went back down to the market and got those lewd fellows of the baser sort. And they said, come on, Renamob, we're going down to Berea and we're going to cause some problems. And so they came into Berea and they created all kinds of uh, trouble and riot the way they did in Thessalonica. And the church in uh, Berea, they took Paul and they sent him out of town under the cover of darkness. But Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea because they were more covert and undercover. Paul was the front man and no one really uh, knew much about Silas and Timothy. So Silas and Timothy stayed behind to continue to confirm this new church that was being established. I've I've often had this thought, uh, or rather recently I've had this thought as I've been studying this. I wonder if they renovated the synagogue when Paul left town. I wonder if they changed it from a synagogue to a church. Because it sounds like this synagogue, everyone was on board with accepting the truth. 
the Jews were on board, the Jewish leaders were on board, the Greeks were on board, and I wonder if it went from being a building of Judaism to a building of Christianity. We'll get to heaven and find out. But uh, Silas and Timothy stay, and uh, Paul is taken out of town for his own safety. Now, I just want to say this before we move on to number three. Um, Paul was a man's man. What do I mean by that? There was not a town that Paul went into where he didn't stir up something. He didn't just slip in, preach a little sermon at a church somewhere, eat a pot roast over at, you know, Sister Mildred's house, collect a love offering and go on to the next town. He went in and he found the hornet's nest and he injected himself into the hornet's nest. And man, there was a buzz wherever Paul went. And uh, listen, this guy would get thrown out of one town, he'd go to the next town and do the exact same thing. Now, I'm not advocating going in and causing trouble, but I am advocating being bold with the gospel. We need people who are not ashamed of the gospel. They're bold with it. So they send Paul, and there's a misinformation campaign to make it look as though he's getting in a boat and he's leaving Macedonia But he takes a sudden turn and he goes somewhere else. He goes to the city of Athens. Number one, some trust in tradition. Those folks are hard to reach. Number two, some trust in truth. Those folks are easy to reach. Number three, notice some trust in themselves. Some trust in themselves. Did anybody figure out the blank ahead of time? Anybody get it? Brother Jason, any luck? Not this time? Okay. All right. You were sleeping. Amen. Um, Letter A. I'm just teasing you. Letter A, notice their intellect. Their intellect. Look at Acts 17 and look at verse number 15 with me. And it says, And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus for, uh, uh, to come to him with all speed, they departed. So Paul is dropped off in Athens, and he tells the men that leave him there, uh, Tell Saul and Timothy where I am and tell them to get here as quick as they can. Now, in Paul's time, there were three great cities in the world. They were the cities of Jerusalem, the city of Rome, and the city of Athens. These were the three great cities in Paul's era. And those cities had been great for several hundred years, some of them even a millennia. Uh, Athens was an impressive city filled with many academics, art, uh, literature, oratory, and religion were the stuff of which Athens was made. Uh, Some of you that are uh, students of history may know a little bit about Athens, Greece. This was the native home of Socrates and Plato and the adopted home of Aristotle, Epicurus, and Zeno. Rome had left it alone in their conquest of the world. Rome had left Athens alone and allowed it to be self-governed. Athens illustrates to what height of achievement man can ascend and still be ignorant of the God of heaven. Athens was famous for mathematics. It was the Athenians who laid down its principles, terminology, and methods. Uh, Pythagoras and Aristarchus set astronomy on its course there in Athens. Archimedes invented the science of hydrostatics. Uh, uh, Philosophy was virtually a Greek invention with Plato and Aristotle dominating Western thought. Aristotle was famous for his philosophy and logic, his physics, biology, ethics, and political science. The Greeks gave us liberty, uh, law, democracy, and the first parliament. Uh, Their architecture was magnificent with structures such as Mars Hill and the Acropolis, which were filled with sculptures of, uh, of deified heroes and illustrious art. Paul meandered through the city by himself, awaiting the rest of his team. He saw a people who were filled with knowledge, academic knowledge, philosophy, all of uh, the arts. Uh, They were filled with knowledge of earthly things, but they were spiritually bankrupt. They were spiritually bankrupt. In all that uh, the Athenians had achieved, they had nothing to show spiritually. Nothing to show spiritually. Why? Watch this. They were their own gods. They were their own gods. Their intellect, uh, th- their intellect was what they relied on. When they came up dry, they created their own forms of false deity by their own hands. Letter A, we see their intellect. You go back and look at the 
history of Athens, right around the time Paul lived there, the hundreds of years leading up to it, Athens was the, if you wanted an education, Athens was the university city to go to. It was academia at its finest from what man can offer. Letter B, notice their idolatry, their idolatry. Look at verse number 16. The Bible says, Now while Paul waited for them, Silas and Timothy, while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was stirred. And that word stirred is only used a couple of other times in the Greek in the New Testament and carries with it the idea of being angry. Uh, His spirit was angered or stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews. Let me pause there. That's the only phrase about him going in the synagogues. Can I tell you what I think Paul did when he went into the synagogue in Athens? I'm sure he probably tried to preach Christ, but I think he went into the synagogues because he thought, well, there's a starting place where at least they're not supposed to believe in idolatry. That would be the only safe haven in the entire city of Athens where they would agree with me that bowing down to false idols is wrong because they have the Ten Commandments there in their Jewish faith. He went in there and he disputed with them. I wonder if he got on them for their callous attitudes toward the idolatry within their own city. The Bible says, continuing in verse 17, and with the devout persons and in the market daily, with them that met with him. So he's going around town and he's witnessing to people everywhere he can. He's talking about the idolatry, verse 18. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? Other uh, some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of a strange God, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. They had never heard of such a thing. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest uh, certain strange things to our ears. We would know, uh, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers uh, which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear of some new thing. I uh, walked into a a church member's house one time back in Maryland and they had a sign on their refrigerator that read this. Some people's minds are so open their brains are falling out. I got a good laugh over that. This is the Athenians. Paul is in the marketplace, and he's telling them, you all are polytheists, meaning you believe in multiple gods. I am what we call a monotheist. I believe in one God who reigns supreme, and all these other gods, your Greek gods, they're all false. And uh, I believe in God who sent Jesus to the earth to die for the sin of mankind, and after three days He rose from the dead. And people are looking at Him and thinking, oh, well, that's interesting. We, we've never heard of this strange God before. And they thought, well, let's take Him to our superiors and let's, let's have them educate Him and let's see how this philosophy debate goes. Now, the Epicureans, the Bible says they brought them to the Epicureans and the Stoics. From the research I've done and what I understand about these Epicureans and Stoics, the Epicureans believed that indulgence was the key to life and pleasure was the highest good. The Epicureans professed to believe in the gods, but held that the gods had no interest in mankind, sort of like modern-day deists or deists of uh, uh, two, three hundred years ago. The world, they believed, was left to itself. According to their founder, Epicurus, the pleasure most worth pursuing was a life of tranquility, free from passion and pain, free above all, uh, uh, free above all from superstitious fears, in particular, the fear of death. So again, what did the Epicureans believe? They believed pleasure is the end game and uh, the best pleasure is to be afraid of nothing and just kind of live chill, right? Uh, I'm sure they were probably on some drugs that just kind of made them space out and think, yeah, man, everything's great, man, everything's cool. Uh, but uh, pa- the passions and, uh, and pleasure, and that's what's good. Uh, the Stoics were the opposite. So you, you all are familiar with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Amen. I heard someone say, I don't want to be a Sadducee because they're so sad, you see. Amen? I don't want to be a Pharisee because they're not fair, you see. You all awake tonight? Some of you look like you want to crawl under a rock and die after I told those jokes, okay? Um, 
those, those were pretty lame jokes. But you had the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and, and uh, they were of different religious sects. One believed in the resurrection, the other one did not. I think the Sadducees did not. Well, this would have been like the philosophers of Greece. You had the Epicureans and the Stoics. They were like the Pharisees and Sadducees of the Jewish realm. What did the Stoics believe? Well, they were the opposite. As far as the gods were concerned, the Stoics were fatalists. God was the world's soul, and the world was God's body. Their leading belief was that man should live according to nature. I think we have some Stoics still alive today, right? I come down 95 and I see these billboards about, uh, uh, don't kill the animals. And I'm like, give me a big beef steak on my plate, amen? Um, but uh, come on, preach, preacher. Um, but the Stoics were all about nature and probably tree huggers and worshiping nature. And they bring Paul in and Paul is telling them about Jesus and they're thinking to him, oh, okay, well this is one more God we'll add to the many gods we believe in. What is the conclusion we draw from here with their idolatry? Well, Romans chapter 1, verse 22 says, Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Some of the most foolish people I know are professors in public universities. And I'm not taking a shot at their IQ or their book smart. Because some of them, I will never be able to hold a candle to their mental academic abilities. But what has happened? They've become so smart and so educated that they've become foolish. Because now they don't need to trust in God because in their heart and mind they're smarter than God. They now trust in themselves. I don't have time for religion. I'm above religion. I don't have time for the Bible. I'm above the Bible, they profess themselves to be wise. They've become fools. Letter C, we see their inclusion. Look at verse 22 and 23 where we began the message this evening. We're almost done. 22, 23. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and behold your devotion, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. So if you look up um, uh, in, a, in a search engine, you look up pictures of Mars Hill, what you'll see is an incredible amphitheater built, built on the side of a, of, a, of, a, of a hill, built on the side of a, 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 a mini mountain. Paul had drawn enough buzz that when he stood up in this amphitheater, he drew a crowd and um, he spent time walking around the outskirts of town and noticed uh, all the idols that were laid out there. One idol read to the unknown God. And Paul used that as a springboard to preach to them Jesus. And so here you have these people that are so intelligent when it comes to books. They're steeped in idolatry to make up for the lack of religion that uh, academics offers. Uh, they're inclusive to every God under the sun unless that God declares himself to be the one true living God that would uh, cancel out the rest. Letter D, notice their ignorance. Their ignorance. These people were blinded by trust in themselves. And Paul would preach a powerful sermon that would fall mostly on deaf ears. Look at verse 24. Let's read down to the end of the chapter. The Bible says, God, this is Paul's sermon, God that made the world and things therein, speaking to the Stoics about nature, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation. That they should seek the Lord, if haply they might uh, feel after him, and find him, though he be not far uh, from every one of us. He's right there. You can reach out to him. He made you. He loves you. Uh, reach out to him. He's waiting for you. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or stone graven by art and men's devices. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now 
commandeth all men, Jew and Gentile, all men everywhere to repent, to turn from their idolatry. 31, because he hath appointed a day in that which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, speaking of Jesus, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Some mocked. That's what people who are smarter than you do. They mock at your faith. And others said, we will hear thee again on this of this matter. So Paul departed from them. Howbeit, howbeit, uh, certain men clave unto him and believed. Among the which was Dionysus and the Areopagite uh, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So Paul preaches this sermon in this town of, uh, filled with intellectual people. What were the response. Most dismissed Paul's message and yawned at it. Some considered hearing him again. A handful of people turned to Christ and got saved. Was Paul's time in Athens a waste? Not for those that believed it wasn't. Not for those that believed. Um, you could spend a lifetime sharing the gospel and only see a handful of people come to Christ for salvation. And you know what? It's still worth it. It's still worth being mocked and ridiculed and laughed at, and dismissed, and rejected for the few that put their faith in Jesus. And I believe that the three responses to Paul's uh, uh, doctrine, Paul's sermon, uh, uh, are the same three responses we see today. Some trust in tradition. They're locked into their tradition. They're not going to hear our gospel. Turn over to Romans chapter 1. We'll finish the sermon here. Romans 1.16 with me. Others trust in truth. Boy, they're hungry to find the truth, and when you present it to them... They are ready to consider it, analyze it, and receive it. Some are so uh, uh, busy uh, believing in themselves that they don't want to hear truth because they think they are truth, and there's no fallacy in them. They're filled with pride and blinded by their own arrogance. I want to finish the sermon with this verse out of Romans 1 this evening. Look at Romans 1.16. Brother Carson did a marvelous job preaching this verse on a Sunday night while I was sick. Look here, for I am not ashamed... Of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. I give Paul high praise, because no matter where he went, he didn't care how he was going to be received. He had truth, and he was going to share it. And some would reject it, some would receive it, but he was going to give it all the same. And my friend, as you go out this week, you're going to have some people you run into, they're trusting in tradition or they're trusting in themselves. And you're going to give the gospel and they're going to reject your message. We are not looking for those that trust in tradition or trust in themselves. We're looking for those that trust in truth. Find them. Give them the gospel. And lead them to a place of salvation. With those who trust in themselves and trust in traditions, pray for them. And uh, take your opportunities where you have them to convince them. Some of you in here have family uh, that are locked into a secular worldview and don't want to consider the gospel. You take your chances where you can. You find those windows of opportunity, inject the gospel. But uh, be careful not to beat people over the head. Uh, be gentle, be discerning, and pray that God will soften their heart. Let's bow our heads for prayer this evening. Lord, we thank you tonight for this opportunity to look at uh, your servant Paul on his second missionary journey. And as he's taking the gospel to every corner of, the, uh, of that region, Lord, different responses. Help us this evening to be on the lookout for people who are hungry for truth. Lord, may we tell them of your saving grace. May we lead them to a point of decision. And Lord, we pray for their salvation. Help us this evening during this time of invitation to recommit our hearts to being soul winners, to taking the truth and sharing it with anyone and everyone that will listen. May we not use excuses such as people don't want to believe or people don't want to hear what I have to say. May we get busy about sharing our faith. In Jesus' name.